welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Uh, first, an apology for the last couple of days. I know there were no episodes and some of you were probably driven to drink or worse, but we are back today and uh, should be on a normal schedule from now on. Uh, I'm in Connecticut currently. Um, beautiful day, a few clouds in the sky, otherwise blue and the flowers are starting to come out. Kevin, what's the weather like where you are? Is it equally glorious? It is. In fact, as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to go out and get into it, I think, for a little while before uh, before it gets dark and uh, depressing. You know, what people uh, maybe don't understand is that I've actually discovered a pattern here, which is that we tend to miss episodes right around the time that the print version of the magazine is going into deadline. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, so I noticed you uh, laboring away until we're left or uh, 7 or 8 o'clock when I left the other night, so... Uh, if we have an excuse, that's it. It's not because Charlie's drinking too much and has a hangover or uh, any of that, because that's just you know considered par for the course, and uh, we go ahead and do it anyway in those circumstances. That's true. That's true. In fact, they're some of our, our best episodes, I think. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> when the proximity to alcohol is uh, pretty is interesting. You know. Absolutely. Well, you speaking of the magazine, you have a, a piece coming up. Maybe you want to talk about. It. Maybe we could start there. Well, actually, you know, I, I want to throw it just a little different direction at first because we're talking about the subject of race and racism, and, and mine has to do with uh, some historical stuff about the Republicans and Democrats around the, the New Deal era. But before we go, you know, back there, I think we should probably start with the uh, the today's race and racism news, which is this guy named uh, Donald Sterling, who I'm pleased to report, by the way. Uh, is literally today a man who could not get laid in a whorehouse, as the uh, saying goes, because he has been banned by the owner of the Bunny Ranch uh, chain of brothels in Nevada from ever ever showing up there. So he's not only too low for the NBA, he's too low for uh, Nevada brothel as well. Now, being a guy who doesn't really follow sports or celebrity news or anything like that, I had no idea who this guy was. When I heard the name Sterling, I was thinking of Roger Sterling from uh, Mad Men. Yeah. And I thought, well, yeah, of course he's got some retrograde attitudes. You know, this is a guy who was, you know, fought in World War II. He's an old man. But um, turns out Donald Sterling is a real person, um, even though from the photos he kind of doesn't look like one, and neither does his, his, his girlfriend. And he's got some sort of complicated, weird personal life, I guess, where he's married, but he's got this young, uh, tattooed girlfriend who seems to, well, I'm not going to say what it seems like there. Anyway, they seem to have an odd relationship and one that may have something to do with his net worth. And uh, he said some really, you know, fairly weird, nasty things to her where he was saying, I don't care if you sleep with black men, but, <clears throat> excuse me. Don't bring him to basketball games or be seen in public with them because that would embarrass me. And then, you know, there were some questions about what this guy is like politically because he was an Obama donor and apparently gave a lot of money to a bunch of liberal causes. But he's also a registered Republican. So everyone, of course, trying to use him to uh, tar the other side. And uh, some questions that have come out afterward, uh, I think it's a legitimate discussion about um, is this, you know, really something that should be a public matter? These were apparently were private conversations that his girlfriend recorded and was trying to, you know, use for purposes of being vindictive, et cetera, et cetera. So let me hear, tell you where I go on this, first of all. Um, gross attitudes, fairly nasty. Not that surprising from someone in the Southern California uh, investment and entertainment business, which oddly enough, in spite of being sort of uniformly liberal on the issues. Uh, my experience is full of people who have attitudes not really terribly different from his own. 
And uh, but it's another one of those things that just makes me a little sad about the sort of people we have to care about. You know, normally someone like this, some guy, rich guy on the sports team, who cares what he thinks about this, that, or the other? I mean, yeah, he's a bigot and uh, whatever he is. But um, normally, well, in a, in a good world, people just wouldn't be interested in the opinions or comings and goings of someone like this. Now, unfortunately, we live in a world where we have to care about what John Stewart thinks, where we have to care about what actors think and what rock stars think. And apparently we have to care about what owners of NBA teams think. And uh, I kind of don't. What about you? I don't care what he thinks. My, my view on this is, is slightly complicated in that once what he had said had hit the internet, mm. I think the basic market forces that operate within that sport dictated that he was going to have to leave. As a matter of fact, once that was out, there was just no way that he was going to be allowed to stay. This isn't a government issue. This isn't a First Amendment issue. And as we often say, these things are best resolved within the market. And this was a market. This was a contract. His fine was, was the product of a contract that he signed. His ban, likewise, whether he can be forced to sell the team seems to be still up in the air. But if he can, that again will be the product of a contract that he signed and not a government coming in with jackboots and rifles and telling him that he must give up his property. So I can't muster too much sympathy for the guy and I can't say I'm surprised. There are two questions that that pulls up though. The first one is, should that be the case? I mean, it's all very well to say, well, the advertisers would have pulled out, the players would have gone on strike once that was out in the open. But is that good for a society to react like that? I'm never quite sure, and I think Mark Cuban said this, I'm never quite sure whether I'm comfortable with people being ostracized and exiled for things that they have purely said and thought. Now, there's been a little bit of conflation on the Donald Sterling front because it turns out that he's been sued a few times by the federal government for actual housing discrimination. Yeah. And that his view that blacks are unclean and that Hispanics don't work and that Koreans will put up with whatever you throw at them seems to have actually translated into real discrimination and fines and so on. But I would say that that was uh, discrimination that took place outside of his current role. So you'd have to be careful in saying, well, he has to leave the Clippers because of something he did 10 years ago. And even more careful about saying because he did something 10 years ago and now he has expressed views that seem to be related to it, then he should be pushed out in case he does something in the future. That's almost the definition of, of yeah. thought crime. Um, so I, I am uncomfortable in that regard, although I do think what he said is, is, is heinous. And, and if the contract is written as I've heard that it is, then I can't have too much sympathy. What bothers me more than anything in this case is that he said these things not only outside of action, not only outside of his role at the Clippers, but he said them privately, and literally privately. Yeah. He said this on the telephone. He apparently did not think that he was being recorded. I think in California, it's illegal to record somebody without their knowing it. It's not in New York. But so it's possible that she broke the law if she did indeed record this conversation. But how far do we take that? 
I mean, it, it engendered a certain witch hunt mentality that always bothers me. One of the guys at the press conference, I don't know whether he was with the media or he was just a fan, but he asked the speaker at the press conference when it was announced that Sterling had been banned, are you now going to go after everyone else and try and root out the people who have bad views in this way or that way and get them out, clear, clear up this board? Now, uh, he wasn't joking. I mean, he wasn't writing that Will Salatan piece in Slate where he's joking about cleaning Silicon Valley up after the Brendan Eich resignation. He was serious. And, and the reason that we have privacy is because, sure, you could probably find, and not just privacy under the law, I should say, but a culture of privacy, you could probably find NBA players saying terrible things. Probably oh some of them. <laughs> I mean, probably if you were to bug their phones or, or this were to become the norm, you could find people who were deeply homophobic. You could find people cheating on their wives. You could find people doing property deals and, and cheating on their taxes and bribery and all sorts. But in the yeah. process of discovering it, you would also find out all sorts of other things about them, wouldn't you? I mean, you would find out, for example, that maybe somebody had AIDS or maybe somebody's marriage was breaking up. And I don't think that the behavior, and uh, A.J. Delgado wrote a piece about this where she, she explicitly said this, and I think it's a good point. I don't think that you reward the behavior of private leaked phone calls in this way without expecting repercussions in the future. So that's what bothers me about it, not him in particular. Yeah, and I thought that was a good point. And, uh, you know, my general read on this is, of course, I would like there to be such a thing as private life, but I think it's a matter of just plain realism. If you're someone who's well-known enough for people to care about, then privacy is effectively gone. I um, mean, you know, it's one of the things about democratizing communication to the Internet is that once upon a time, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, you had a handful of people who could make a story a national story. You know, the editors at the New York Times, the editors at the uh, major networks, uh, you know, those sorts of things. Now pretty much anybody can do that. What this really put me in mind of is, do you the wonderful old uh, movie, The Paper, Michael Douglas? Uh, it's about this, uh, you know, New York City uh, tabloid newspaper. I've, sort of a day I've seen life, about eight movies in my life, Kevin. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a wonderful scene in the movie where uh, Jason Alexander uh, plays uh, this parking commissioner, I think it is. And they've caught him doing something bad, and they've just made an example out of him and ruined his life. And there's this confrontation where he breaks down, and he's crying, and he says, why me? Why'd you have to pick on me? And the Michael Douglas character says, or Michael Keaton character, rather, I'm sorry, says, um, Sandusky, you work for the city. It was your turn. <laughs> and I kind of right. think that's what happens here with this guy. With Sterling, yeah, there are a lot of bad people out there. There are probably people out there who have worse opinions about this stuff than he does, and some of those people are well-known. It was just his turn. And, um, you know, people like that, I think, are going to have to be uh, careful about what they say. And there is this kind of witch hunt mentality. And as you know very well, uh, National Review, once a year, we have these uh, cruises. Uh, it's a way that we help to raise money for the magazine. And for years now, uh, liberal magazines of various kinds have sent people, you know, incognito uh, aboard our cruises, basically with the goal of trying to catch someone saying something embarrassing, uh, so they can write a story about how we're all horrible racists or sexists or homophobes or anti-Semites or, or whatever. And uh, you know, this sort of uh, this sort of uh, amateur Sherlock Holmes uh, 
gumshoe mentality. I think it's something that's just going to be going to be with us. I think that over time it'll get less effective, just because as you know, anyone who has something that he'd like to hide, it's going to come out. I mean, it's just going to be the rule of the future. Whatever you want uh, to keep hidden is going to be made in public. It's like that uh, section of the Bible where it says, uh, you know, that which is hidden shall be displayed on the whatever in the marketplace. Uh, there just aren't going to be any secrets, and I think that as there are fewer and fewer secrets over time, uh, I think that the, these sorts of revelations are just going to probably mean a lot less. This is like, you know, in the, say in the 1950s, if you were a major politician and you got caught cheating on your wife, it would have been a big, big deal. And of course, they kind of hushed stuff up about that back then. But now we've had so many sex scandals of that kind. Uh, you know, so many, he's on his third wife, on his fourth wife, his fifth girlfriend, whatever sort of things. Yeah. People just kind of look at it now and go, well, okay, maybe it's distasteful. Maybe I don't like it, but um, it just is what it is, and that's that. I do wonder, as somebody who is a, a minor public figure and who certainly has a number of enemies, and you, mm. you are, you're in the same boat, I'm always nervous, for example, about the idea of somebody hacking my email or my phone conversations purely because if you have a sense of humor and you have in jokes there are things that you say and jokes that you tell that out of context could sound awful and this oh, is God. where <laughs> and this is where intent for example comes into play now with um donald sterling it does seem over a long period of time that he has revealed himself to have ugly views and there's no context that you can put in but with say the exact phone conversation, the one that was leaked, there is a case to be made there. And again, AJ Delgado wrote this, that people are at their worst when they are angry in private. And we saw this with Alec Baldwin as well. Yeah. And okay, over the course of his life, he's given us enough evidence to tell us who he is. But in a court, for example, suppose that this was an illegal recording. If this had been the state that had taken yeah. it, it wouldn't have been admissible as evidence. That's a standard that is there for a reason. And is it time in the private sphere where that law doesn't obtain, where that rule doesn't obtain, for us maybe to start treating private conversations a little bit differently, given what you've just said about the ubiquity of technology and the road that we're going down, which is that private life is going to shrink continually. Should we start thinking culturally as a matter of course, okay, but that was taken in private, perhaps in a bad moment, we should ignore it, or it shouldn't really be admissible, not in a legal sense, but admissible against him, you know, for the purposes of a media witch hunt? Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. In fact, you know, I mean, we do have invasion of privacy laws. And I want to say this guy's wife is going to sue the girlfriend under that for some reason or another. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing that in the news. <laughs> Which is weird when the wife is suing the mistress over invasion of privacy. Seems like, well, uh, <laughs> there are many jokes that lend themselves to be made in that context, and I'm not going to make any of them. But, you know, I, I was talking about this a few months ago, I think maybe with you, where there was some, um, gosh, there was a story. I want to say it was somebody over at MSNBC, not one of the real big figures. It might have been someone else, I can't remember. Anyway, the guy comes into work on a Monday morning, and they've shot some uh, promotional commercials for the shows and he doesn't uh, appear in them for whatever reason. And the guy felt slighted and just apparently threw a temper tantrum, you know, yelling, screaming and blah, 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 this and that. And his boss calls him in and says, look, if you ever do that again, you're going to be out on your ear. 
And uh, and the guy later, you know, apologized to everybody and said he'd been having a bad day, was having some stress at home or something. And he had just, you know, it was just a bad moment for him and he kind of blew up. But somebody who didn't like him, you know, made all this stuff public. And because it was a guy on the left, everyone on our side was, you know, ha, 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 look at this guy, look at this jackass. Let's all make fun of him. And, uh, you know, I looked at that and I thought, you know, I can easily see myself on a Monday morning losing my temper and throwing a fit like that. You know, I'm not necessarily uh, prone to tantrums of that sort, but, you know, certainly everyone uh, everyone has moments in private or, in, you know, semi-private even at work or things like that where you're not really doing things for uh, public performance. So every time I see a story about, you know, some celebrity who's had a little too much to drink and does something stupid in public or, you know, some public figure whose every word is being recorded and analyzed uh, for the purpose of mocking that person. You know, what I, what I do is I very quietly uh, thank the fates that I am not a well-known enough person for anyone to care about that much because if that was my life, you know, if someone was following me around every minute of every dumb thing I'd ever done, every embarrassing thing I'd ever done, any, Every time I'd lost my temper, had one glass of wine too many, you know, far worse than most of this stuff, I have to imagine. Right. And and again, this doesn't really apply to Donald Sterling, but the problem with being caught on tape losing your temper is that the public and your enemies then extrapolate from it what you're like as a person in general. I mean, I'm I'm a very calm person. I almost never lose my temper. I almost never shout. Maybe twice a year. When I do, I get very upset. I make up for lost time. And if you were to hear it, you would presume that I'm a terrible sort of person, you know, a diva and, and uh, had, had no control over my emotions and swore a lot, which really isn't, um, isn't the case. And I think, you know, we, we do live now in a world in which one transgression can ruin a career. And this has bothered me for a while purely in the sense that what it's going to do to the sort of people who end up in high profile and, and government public jobs uh, is slightly worrying in the sense that, you know, Marco Rubio, for example, is now on camera talking about an immigration bill that most of the base dislike. So now forever, that's Marco Rubio's thing. He will find it difficult to transcend it. Someone writes something silly or says something intemperate or that can be cast as bigoted or racist or homophobic. Every time the newspapers write about them, it's going to be this person who said this, this person who is a known racist or bigot or homophobe. And I think back to, say, John Adams, who was against the revolution. And you wonder what the campaign commercials would say now. John Adams was, <laughs> before the, was against the revolution before he was for it. Or I think about Winston Churchill, who wrote and said some pretty odd things and was wrong, for example, for a long time on India. And, yeah. and it worries me because, you know, yeah, Donald Sterling spent, uh, has spent a long time thinking these things. No, I don't have a great deal of sympathy for him. But there are a lot of good people out there who could quite easily be caught on tape uh, out of any context or broader context within their life, and they could find their livelihoods ruined. Yeah. And in the uh, Department of Awkward Segways, while one bad comment like that can ruin someone's career now, hundreds of years of it can't ruin you if you're a political party, which is the point of my next piece in National Review coming out tomorrow. So as you know, I've been writing off and on a bit about the history 
of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, specifically regarding the issue of race and racism, from civil rights to emancipation and segregation and all the rest of that stuff. And every time you point out to someone that, look, the Democrats have a really, really bad, ugly record on this stuff, not just on being on the wrong side of civil rights, but uh, fighting anti-lynching legislation, for instance, of being on the wrong side of even little minor things that would have uh, improved the life and conditions of African Americans during that era, uh, being on the wrong side of what would have been a sweeping uh, civil rights uh, bill passed in, in 46 when Taft wanted to, being against Civil Rights Act 1950, uh, being against Civil Rights Act 1957, all of it. The answer you always get, well, those were conservative Democrats. Those were conservatives in the South, and they're a lot more like Republicans today than they are like Democrats today. So you guys on the right have to own those people not us, even though they had D's next to their name, they were really conservatives, and the Republicans who were on the right side of this stuff were, were really liberals. And I've you know, always sort of known that this wasn't true, but uh, I spent a couple of days going over some stuff to uh, document that. What I found was really interesting, there's a guy named uh, Ira Katznelson, who was a professor at the New School for Social Research here in New York, and he was studying specifically the New Deal era, uh, you know, from 1933 to 1950, and he went and took every roll call vote in Congress and uh, you know, organized them into a couple of different categories. One was civil rights, one was fiscal policy, one was economic planning, business regulation, welfare programs, and uh, labor. And so he took uh, not only the uh, which way the parties went in the majority, but you know, each of their votes uh, and tabulated up total scores for this stuff to see who was voting how. And what's surprising, although maybe it shouldn't be surprising, is that you know from 1933 to 1950, the Republicans and the Democrats are very much recognizable as the parties that they are today. Now, these alleged conservatives in the South uh, that everyone blames for the uh, the bigotry and uh, and segregationist policies, the Democrats were conservatives only if you say what conservatism means beginning and end is being in favor of racism, which of course is not what conservatism means. <laughs> so for instance, these alleged conservatives, uh, Southern Democrats, they were in favor of things like uh, minimum wage, which uh, they voted very strongly for. They voted for welfare programs 73% of the time. Uh, they voted for uh, you know, expansive uh, fiscal policy in the great majority of cases. Uh, they voted for economic planning, regulation, particularly of things like utilities. Um, so they voted left, 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 and left, and they were also extraordinarily hostile to African Americans and civil rights. But what's really interesting here is the idea that uh, has been handed down to us, another one of these myths, like the myth of the parties changing places on the question of civil rights, is that the Southern Democrats and the non-Southern Democrats uh, were these two very radically uh, different organizations. And they weren't. In fact, uh, the Southern Democrats and the non-Southern Democrats voted together 87% uh, of the time, uh, which is much more than, say, the Republicans did with the Southern Democrats, which was around 10% uh, of the time. So, you know, the idea that the people in the South who were forwarding these problems, these policies of, of segregation and white supremacy were conservatives is nonsense if you look at where they stood on things like welfare, minimum wage, entitlement programs, spending, taxes, uh, all the rest of that stuff. The one thing that the Southern Democrats were, were slightly more conservative on, or actually significantly more conservative on than their 
non-Southern uh, co-partisans was the issue of labor and uh, labor unions uh, because they you know, regarded cheap labor as being uh, one of their uh, good economic playing cards and they didn't want to see their cost rise. So, you know, the Republicans back then, hostile to Social Security, hostile to the minimum wage, all the stuff we'd like to see them be hostile to today. The parties are very much recognizable, except for the fact that the Democrats had a real change of heart, apparently, on the issue of how they should think about African-Americans. Right. And it's a, it reminds me a little bit when you're talking of the the British National Party, which is not similar to the Democrats in in that it is an openly fascist party, but that it's effectively the Labour Party just doesn't want all of the goodies for people who aren't white. Yeah. And when you look back at the Dixiecrats, in fact, of all places, there was a great essay on this pushing back against precisely the silly idea of the party swap that you're discussing now uh, in Jacobin. Yeah, I read uh, that article. Who's the guy that wrote it? Oh, it was a good I piece. can't remember. It was great. But he was saying, look, guys, <laughs> Southern Democrats love the New Deal. Uh, they just didn't want black people to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, you know, this was not, you know, the, the other thing I, to ask you about uh, that really entertains me with this idea that the uh, parties switch places is this. For a start, and I could be wrong here, I, I could be wrong, this is not really my period, but am I right in saying that uh, African Americans started voting for Democrats long, long before civil rights? I think that with the first or second FDR election. And yeah, the, the last uh, last Republican to win the black vote in presidential race was Hoover. Right, and and secondly, um, you know Georgia, for example. I mean Georgia uh, didn't stop voting Democrat in, in its Senate elections until what nineteen ninety three and two thousand three, respectively. Obviously, there are there are two yeah. seats. You know, so so what is the argument from the left on this? Because it, it seems to me to be facetious. The argument is. Well, the the South started voting Republican to punish the Democrats for the Civil Rights Act 30, 40 years later. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they passed, uh, Republicans disproportionately passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Then the story is that Southern racists are so mad about this, they abandoned the Democrats and start voting Republican 30 years later. <laughs> you know, in 1994. So that really, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't make any sense. I mean, there are really two separate questions going on here. One is, why did black voters, broadly speaking, switch parties uh, from the Republicans to the Democrats? And then the other question is, why did a lot of white voters in the South also switch parties from the Democrats to the Republicans? And they're very different sorts of issues, although they start happening around the same period of time. So yeah, as you alluded to, uh, Democrats start doing really well among African Americans, starting with FDR. Uh, the fact is, the New Deal was and is very, very popular uh, with Black voters. And I've written about this to some extent. That um, it's not—it's not hard to see why that is. Uh, if you're a group, a uh, member of a minority that is systematically excluded not only from political life but also in many ways from economic life, then an interventionist government starts to look probably pretty good to you. You're not going to have the same. Uh, feelings about markets and capitalism and enterprise that someone who hasn't had that experience. So while I think that African Americans have come to the wrong conclusion on that, their their preferences are, are by no means uh, irrational or inexplicable. So by 1946, which is an interesting year because in 1946, uh, Senator Taft offers up what would have been the, uh, the biggest and most important piece of civil rights legislation in American history. And this is the guy who's known as Mr. Conservative, incidentally. Yeah. But by 1946, uh, 
African Americans are majority Democrat in congressional races as well. So by the time that LBJ in 1964 gets around to his, you know, Paul on the road to Damascus moment, and over the course of a very few years, transforms from a guy who had been gutting civil rights legislation and stymieing it in Congress and the Senate, uh, turns into the alleged champion of civil rights. Well, I think it's really not to be too cynical about it, but it's a question of the fact that LBJ, whatever his defects were in life, knew how to count votes. And by you know the 1950s, he was a member of a party that was home to most of the black voters in the country. And he knew, as he, as he said himself, that he had to give them something. Um, because they were starting to develop the political clout to demand and, if necessary, punish their party if they didn't. Now, Republicans, uh, particularly you know, whites in the South, make a similar journey over a similar period of time, and arguably for similar reasons, but on the opposite side. So, in 19, really starting in the 1930s, in the middle 1930s, Republicans start to make some inroads in the uh, in the South. And Republican voters in the South look like Republican voters everywhere else at the time, and really since then, which is they really start to do well in relatively affluent suburban communities, just like they do in New England and the West and everywhere else. Their inroads don't come in the rural uh, districts that tend to have the strongest you know, segregationist views and anti-civil rights views. Uh, Republicans in the South, like Republicans everywhere else in the country, react to the New Deal, many of them by becoming more conservative, by regarding it as an overreach of the central government. And they start slowly uh, migrating toward the Republican Party. Now, as you, as you point out, as, as we said, this doesn't become you know, anywhere near a complete process until the 1990s and later. Uh, you know, I want to say Mississippi had two Republican governors in the 20th century. Uh, you know, that's just, uh, it took a while to get there. So, yeah, the Southern Congressional delegation doesn't go Republican, I guess, until 1995, after the 94 election. And um, there are really not that much outliers in terms of presidential races either, except for, of course, the election in 1964, uh, in which right. Goldwater takes a core of states in which they are very, very, very hostile to civil rights. Now, interestingly, Goldwater did overall in the South less well than Eisenhower had done a few years before. He finishes like seven-tenths of one point behind where Eisenhower did. So the idea that the South, you know, flipped even in presidential elections at this point is not, not true either, although a certain number of core Southern states in the 64 elections certainly did that. But if you look at the South, you know, in the, you know, the, the big Reagan election of uh, 84, or if you look at what the South did in the Clinton elections, uh, or in, you know, in a number of others, their voting doesn't really look that different from the rest of the country. And uh, at, least not until, at least not until, you know, around the post-Reagan era, you know, the 1990s and forward, the South is pretty solidly Republican at that point, at least in presidential races. Unfortunately, though, complex as it is, it's such a profitable theme. Oh, it's yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's just unlikely to go anywhere. And people are so sure of it. Yeah, well, as you know, as our first uh, topic of conversation reminds us, the, the worst thing that can happen to you in American public life is to be branded a racist. You know, if you're a racist, it's, it's the worst thing you can be in American public life. Now, this is no apology. I mean, racism is pretty bad. There are probably some worse things in the world than that. 
But um, in terms of being a public figure in this country or a political figure, being a racist is just simply the worst thing you can be. And so there's a great deal of energy on the left to explain away what not just the Democratic Party, but the progressives as a movement have done in the past. When that's the interesting thing here, if you look at the people who are progressives, as the term is understood, people who support enlarging the welfare state, people who support Social Security, people who support the minimum wage, people who support uh, the uh, you know, regulation of corporations and that sort of thing. These are the people voting in favor of segregation from the 1930s, 1950s, and onward. The racists are the progressives. They're the same people in a lot of the cases. Not in every case, but certainly in a lot of cases. You, know, you have capital P progressives like uh, Senator Fulton, a lady from uh, Georgia, giving speeches about why we should be lynching more black people. Uh, you know, this is a member of the Progressive Party, in fact, who want, goes on to be a Democratic uh, senator from Georgia. Well, the progressive movement, it shouldn't be forgotten, was extremely tied up with sort of scientific socialism, yeah. which was tied up with racism, eugenics, the notion that we could map people into sort of groups and, and, and treat them as factory workers in society. As well. Of course they, <laughs> Of course they went down that road. Yeah, well, and that's the point I get to in my story here, because, you know, the, the same movement and tendency that supported segregation and, and the suppression of African-Americans in the 20th century now supports affirmative action and the rest of that stuff in the 21st century. And really, it's just a flip side of what they've always believed, which is that if you're going to regiment society and manage society through politics, then you have to divide people up and classify them. And these sorts of people get this and those sorts of people get that. And that's why people on the left are so fascinated with, you know, race, class, sex, and, uh, and those sorts of things. Because if you look at society as a mass of stuff that needs to be organized by you, well, then you've got to start coming up with subcategories and classifications and various sorts of things. And then putting those things into play as political policies, whereas conservatives tend to operate more off of, uh, you know, a set of general generally applicable principles. You know, we believe in things like free markets, not just for white people, not just for black people, not for Hispanics or men or women or homosexuals or whatever. We believe in free markets across the board. Uh, we believe in the rule of law, at least you do, across the board. <laughs> and uh, we want to, uh, we want to, you know, treat, and we certainly all of us want to treat people equally under the law. Um, you know, so well, we've got, yeah, go ahead, please. No, and, we, and, and now we've sort of moved into something that's very important, but is a slightly different topic, which is that, I think this comes down to, you know, a, a crucial difference between the left and the right and why very often people who are smart and, and can grasp concepts just cannot understand why the other person takes the view that they, they do. And that is that if I look, for example, at the tax system and I think that taxes are too high and that there are too many taxes and that the government is taking in too much money. My solution might be to say, let's cut everyone's taxes by 20%. Now, to me, that is a fair, colorblind, class-blind way of changing the code with one line in a law that affects everyone identically. You could pass it literally with one line. It says, every American who pays taxes now pays 20% less. The president can sign it. But, but, the left will inevitably say, ah, but 20% savings for a billionaire is much, um, is much more than 20% savings for somebody who earns minimum wage. Now, that's absolutely true. But the left, in my experience, then says, 
So what you're trying to do is privilege the billionaire over the person who doesn't have too much money, rather than that that is just the consequence of a flat and, you know, colorblind, class-blind, gender-blind law. And I think when it comes to race, you're, you're spot on in that we say, right, well, we want a free market and we don't care who thrives in it. And we don't care who rises. And we don't care who falls. You know, um, there will be some safety net there for people who fall. But again, that's not going to be administered on any sort of class basis. That's just going to be there if people meet certain, certain uh, variables. And they say, yeah, but let's divide people in and work out how it would affect them individually, you know, and, and it's very difficult to get past that in conversation. Yeah, and I think that speaks to something else that I've, I've talked about a little bit, and maybe we should think about closing out on this, which is, I, and this is one of those, you know, self-descriptions that can tend to be an act of self-flattery. I don't, I don't mean it that way, but it is a really important difference between the left and the right, broadly speaking, which is that the right in this country is essentially an ideological movement. Now, you may think it's a bad ideology. You may think it's a stupid philosophy based on stupid things. But the right is essentially a movement that's about ideological principles, whereas the left is really a coalition of special interest groups. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no you know, overarching philosophical reason that the Teamsters and the gay marriage people and welfare recipients and the Ivy League faculty should all be on the same political team. Uh, but they've all got their particular uh, thing that they're getting out of this. And so it makes sense for them to look at things that way. So, yeah, I mean, if you have that kind of view, then so does Sotomayor's. Sonia Sotomayor's position on this, which is if you change the rules about affirmative action, you're creating unique uh, burdens upon racial minorities makes sense. Although she's wrong about that, you know, because they do they did change the rules in Michigan, this affirmative action case by enacting a constitutional amendment. But the party that was disadvantaged by this wasn't blacks and Latinos and other minorities. It's people who support affirmative action policies. You know, they're the ones whose uh, predilections are being blocked. Uh, by this law. I think that's the fundamental thing that was misunderstood about that case. Yeah, and, and maybe we should finish on this. As you say, we've, got, we've gone a little over, which is great, but um, this is why it, it strikes me that we would never get the Bill of Rights into a constitution now. And that is that, you know, when you believe in these sorts of principles, as we do, then saying free speech for everyone is not a difficult proposition. And when you believe in it, that Arizona law that we talked about, which would have allowed individuals to refuse service to people they dislike. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I'm fine with that being a property rights issue in the law for everybody. But the left opposed that on the grounds that there would be certain groups that would be particularly hard hit if it were passed. And I could see an identical situation occurring were the First Amendment up for debate now. Because inevitably, the consequence of having a First Amendment is that people who are typically disliked or people who are historically discriminated against are going to bear the brunt. Very few people are going to stand up in a public square and rely upon the First Amendment to say something like, I don't like Game of Thrones. I mean, nobody cares (laughs) about that, right? No one would care if they said that. It's only when they get to marching through Jewish areas in Nazi uniforms and saying hideous things about gays and Muslims and African-Americans and so on that you really need the First Amendment to be there. And I could just see the situation in which what is really a, a generally applicable law would become 
Well, yeah, you know, it's like critical race theory. I'm supposed to bring this full circle. Yeah, well, actually, you don't even have to imagine all that much because the First Amendment is up for debate, and it really is being argued on those same sorts of grounds, and that's with you know campaign finance laws, right. where people say if we give people an absolute right to free speech, then people who have a lot of money or resources right. of other kinds will enjoy disproportionate advantage from that, which, of course, is true, but it's also true if you own a newspaper or a television station or a radio station or something. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that we should maybe talk about... Tomorrow is that the Democrats appear to be going into 2014 uh, arguing for Obamacare and the repeal of the First Amendment, which is not right. the platform I'd have chosen. Maybe we should uh, finish up, Kevin, today. Um, I have here, I'd like to read it in full, um, Donald Sterling's invitation to the annual meeting of the NAACP.